This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. Hello. Hi. Um, thank you for, for being with us today. And if you want to just take a, a quick second and introduce yourself, who you are, and a little bit about yourself so that our listeners know who they're listening to. Sounds good. My name is Stacy. I live outside of Boulder, Colorado, and I am currently a um, single mom or an only mom to two young kids. I um, had a very long career in retail design, and I am now um, kind of still doing that, but I'm self-employed and, um, you know, still in that industry, had the opportunity to start my own business in that world. So cool. That's kind of who I am and what I do. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and before we kind of like dive into things, I just want to give up a disclosure that we are recording this (laughs) During the great COVID-19 pandemic of 2020, we are using some technology so that we can all record remotely and um, we are not face-to-face. So all of our listeners just kind of bear with us. Hopefully the sound quality is okay, but um, these are important conversations to have. So we are not going to stop having them just because of a freaking pandemic. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And yeah, and with that, I guess I'll just kind of turn it over to you and um feel free to kind of start sharing your story wherever you want to. Okay. Um, yeah, I, let's see. I, my abuser is my late husband. And so this is kind of a um, twofold, I suppose, trauma for me, because not only was I kind of in the throes of trying to heal and learn and kind of better myself after surviving the violence, I then had this additional trauma of his suicide. Um, Yeah, because of the situation. So, um, you know, (laughs) I'm about 10 months out from that. And, um, you know, kind of in a, in a good place with my, my healing journey, thanks to, um, you know, a lot of amazing people in my life. Um, So I think, um, you know, what's so interesting for me is our, our story, um, you know, our our life together started, I was um, coming out of a, uh, my first marriage, actually. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that first marriage was kind of like, (laughs) <laughs> what I think was more, I I was in that marriage because it felt like the kind of socially appropriate or right, right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. We definitely were, didn't really see eye to eye on what marriage was or, or what our future was. And I think that all stemmed from the fact that we, um, we never really had those tough conversations. 
you know, right. we're in our twenties. And I think we both came from, from families or from places where you just didn't have those kinds of conversations. Everything got mm-hmm. kind of got brushed under, under the rug. And, you know, at some point I said, Oh my goodness, like this, you know, clearly we have some different ideas and, and I need to leave this marriage. And that's what I, what I did in comes, um, my, my late husband, we had actually worked together and, um, you know, had kind of reconnected as I was leaving that, um, that marriage and thought, wow, like this, this relationship is amazing. It's, it's something that I'd never Mm. experienced before in such a beautiful way, because he was this guy who was so upfront with me and so open. And, you know, we came from very different backgrounds. We, um, you know, grew up in very different worlds and he was just so open and so expressive and so understanding and accepting and, um, you know, so new to me as <laughs> somebody who wanted to talk and have the hard conversations about emotions and feelings. And he was really upfront about who he was and what he had been through and right. had, had really outlined his, you know, ultimately traumas that he grew up with, which, you know, he came from a very, very physically violent household. His mother was very physically abusive. I mean, things that, that you can't even imagine, you know, somebody could do to a little kid. Right. Um, You know, he was sexually abused. And of course the emotional abuse um, always goes along with those two things. Um, And, you know, but, but his, his whole point, I guess, in, in life was that he wanted to kind of break that generational trauma. And, um, you know, he really wanted kids. He really wanted a family. He really wanted a partner who he could be close to and open with. And, um, you know, it, we kind of helped each other. They say like relationships, you find the people who can kind of help you heal those own traumas within yourself. Mm. And, and he did that for me. Like, I think I grew up with things like, you know, body images, uh, body image issues, or like not always feeling good enough or smart enough. And he, um, he made me see myself in a different light and really helped me heal those parts of, of me. And, you know, for him, he was always searching for this peace, right? He can't, he grew up in a very chaotic, turbulent um, family, extended family as well, um, moving a lot and just seeing different types of, of violence and, 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 um, abuse. (laughs) And, you know, so what I kind of brought to the table for him is I was somebody who was very deep into like yoga and meditation and, you know, I was a runner. And, and so he started practicing all these things and he was like, wow, like this feels, good. Um, this, you know, is helping me manage my, my, myself, self-regulate, you know, helping manage anger or other issues that, that he had had in his life. What you're describing is like coming out of this first marriage and, you know, like divorce, regardless of the circumstances is pretty traumatic for people. And it, it, there are real feelings of like grief and loss there. Um, you might be, feeling particularly vulnerable at a certain point. And then this other person sort of like swoops in at the right exact right moment and really was able to contrast, you know, this other person in a way that like creates buy-in sort of immediately. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think we both did that for, for each other. You know, mm-hmm. he, he had come out of a marriage as well. And, and, you know, to kind of further extend some of his trauma, he, he had just come out of a marriage where um, he, they had had a daughter together. And when his um, daughter was about four years old, his adopted father, probably the only consistent adult in his life, was dying. And his last words to my late husband were, you know, I know other family members have said it, and I know it's hurt your relationship with them, but I'm, I'm dying, and I just have to say it. That little girl isn't yours. And he, Yikes. yeah, when he was four, when this little girl was four, you know, he went, took her for a DNA test and figured out, yeah, this little girl isn't mine. And, you know, it took him a year to to kind of decide what to do and, and struggled, of course, with the grief of not only losing a marriage, but losing a daughter and right. losing that, you know, what he was always searching for, which is family. And here he was losing it again. So here I come along, I am kind of different from the women he had dated before. I'm, you know, stable, I have a good career, I, you know, I'm this kind of, quote, unquote, normal, normalcy for him and and somebody who he could see building a future with. So, you know, I think both of us just kind of fell into that place of like, contrast and, and, you know, oh, I can heal in this somehow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, no, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we then um, got pregnant with my son. And, um, you know, at that point, he said, gosh, you know, it's really important for me, given what I grew up in, that one of us is home with, um, with our, our kid, with our son. And, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations about that. But I think my career not only had, um, kind of more stability and, you know, I, I enjoyed what I did and, and it made sense from a career point of view. I had kind of had more growth opportunity, um, Mm -hmm. where I was and, you know, he was raised in a very large family. He was, you know, his mother was one of 14 children. He was one of, you know, 56 or something cousins at the time. So he, and he loved kids and he was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to stay home. I'm going to be stay at home dad. And this was 12 years ago, you know, so people didn't really do that as much, you know. And they still don't, but it's definitely more acceptable than it is now. You know, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, they and he got a lot of comments, you know, things like, you know, oh, you must be out of work. That's why you're doing it. Right. Or things like, um, oh, well, you know, must be nice. I'd love it if, you know, my woman could work all day and I could just stay at home. And of course, that's not that's not who he was. He was an amazing father. He was incredibly attentive to, um, to our son and to me as well. And, um, you know, (laughs) that, that was good. But I think, you know, through my pregnancy and through the early days with my son, he felt like that was maybe an opportunity somehow to repair his relationship with his mother Mm -hmm. and, um, invited her kind of to come see our son. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. It was really the first time I had spent time with his family 
Um, right. And I say time, it was all of, of three days before we had to literally throw her out of our house because she became very physically violent and threatening towards our son. Mm. Oh, and it was just, you know, it was heartbreaking to see like it, it, it broke him, you know, it broke him. Well, and it's one thing to hear about it and it's another thing to see it. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Here I was, you know, living it with him, but also feeling the repercussions for him, you know? Right. And, um, you know, obviously he really distanced himself from his family, which, um, he was raised in a, he's Hispanic. And so he, you know, there's definitely a, you know, the, the guy takes care of the mom forever type of a thing. The son takes care of the mom. And, you know, he was, he really wrestled with the guilt of having to cut his mom out for his own sanity. And of course, then his extended family, um, because there was always this, you know, trying to pull back in. Um, and, you know, his mother kind of not happy with the damage that she had already done had then called my family and, you know, talked a whole, and, you know, these people had never met. We didn't have any kind of a big, we both had had former marriages, so we didn't have any kind of big wedding. Um, So our families had never met. And, you know, he was, he was crushed by that when he found out, oh my goodness, you know, you're now, you know, it, it planted that seed for him of now can I can't trust my family, but I can't trust your family either. Right. And now you're getting a very intimate look into the dysfunction. Exactly. Absolutely. And um, and <laughs> yeah, and and, you know, it was interesting because at that point, so a few years later, my daughter was born and um, <laughs> and I think you know, he had been living with this kind of uncertainty of, of, you know, who loves me, who accepts me. Um, you know, my family clearly left. I don't really know if Stacy's family, how they feel about me now. And, um, you know, and of course our second child comes, it's a daughter and I can immediately see that trigger, right. Of, of that memory of his, first daughter. Right. Um, you know, and things start to unravel for him at that point. And I, all of a sudden, you know, he is showing outward anger towards neighbors, um, towards friends, never towards me at this point, you know, we're, we're many years into our relationship and, you know, he had never really turned that anger towards me, but, but his anger towards other people is becoming scary. And right. He's sort of like in this pattern of escalation. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so it's starting with those outside sources. And of course, that begin, begins kind of that isolation, right? Turning friends away, not wanting to connect anymore, not wanting to have friends around and finding those excuses as to why not. Right. And it's all coming out through through anger. Um, <laughs> we had you know, at that time, our son was about to start kindergarten. And so we, we moved not many miles up the road to um, a house that was a little bit bigger and in a better school district for us. And it was, um, you know, it was a big job. It was something we kind of had to get the whole house and kind of redo it. And it was interesting because he had this, he had this project 
something to throw himself into. And, um, and it, it kind of quelled that, that anger. And, you know, looking back, it's, it's um, pretty obvious to me now that it was like, he felt useful again. And, you know, he felt, even though he was an amazing father and a great husband and, you know, did all of our laundry and cooked and, you know, learning games with our kids, he, you know, all of these little seeds that had been planted (laughs) of, of, oh, you're not supporting the family or, you know, whatever insecurities his, his mother had planted and then even unknowing strangers in their completely, um, neutral comments about being a stay-at-home dad had somehow, you know, chipped away at that, that (laughs) self-esteem. Right. And I think too, uh, one part of an abusive personality can be feeling so out of control internally Mm -hmm. that then they try to externalize that and, and control their environment, control people around them so that they can quell or like get some sort of sense of peace internally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I kind of am hearing some of that in, in how you were describing his behavior. Like, oh, now I have a project again. I have something I can control. I can like, I can, you know, feel calm again inside. Yeah. And I, a hundred percent agree with you. And I think it's also part of that, like self-regulation, right? That mm-hmm. when you're feeling anxious or, or depressed and, and, you know, if you can find ways to self-regulate, you know, being active right. and, and, you know, finding purpose, of course, is a huge one. <laughs> right, and, right. and you can kind of, you know, either heal and or push down. And of course, in his case, all he was doing was, was pushing it down. And, right. you know, of course, what temporarily distracting uh, himself. Right, exactly. And just like a volcano, at some point that comes out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it did, it was, um, it was probably, gosh, two, two or so years later, you know, the house was in a good place. Our son was in second grade or, or maybe third grade. Um, our daughter had started kindergarten and he found himself with a lot of time on his hands. And I think that those feelings of abandonment, those feelings of, you know, lack of purpose, um, you know, and just merely not being able to distract yourself from, from what's happening mentally for you just bubbled up. I had come home from a business trip one night and, um, you know, we put the kids to bed and we're getting ready for bed. And the next thing I know, he was on top of me, um, you know, pinning my, my hands under his knees and choking me. And, um, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on. And of course, all of a sudden I could smell his breath. He had clearly been drinking. He, he was drunk. Um, and, you know, he became really violent and, and was choking me to the point where I was almost blacking out and then he'd give me air. And, um, you know, it was like when people say, you know, this Jekyll and Hyde personality, right. Whoa, this was the first time that I really saw this person emerge. And it was, it was terrifying. Um, well, and I, and I want to stop too and just point out, I so appreciate you, um, 
really being honest about the trajectory trajectory of your relationship and how this you spent many good years with this person yeah. and i think we have certain ideas about abusive dynamics and how they unfold that are not always true or applicable and that this person had never been violent or towards you for years, you know, and I think that's important to remember, um, you know, there were potentially red flags there that you were noticing, mm -hmm. but they can always be excused away, you know, when you feel like you understand where that person is coming from. And then for it to escalate so quickly in such a short amount of time right. for you, it's just so disorienting, so jarring. And, um, but, and there's so many good years behind it. There's so many good years behind it that it's just got to be so incredibly confusing. You know, I, I think that's uh, dumbstruck, right? I mean, yeah. you're right. You know, there's there's certainly red flags, but, you know, so many of us have, you know, past traumas or past, you know, things that come up that, that kind of affect you or, you know, anxiety or, or, you know, all of these things that can affect us that we could work through, right? So, you know, when you don't witness the violence, when you don't firsthand, um, <laughs> or you see bursts of anger, and then all of a sudden, get them under control. And right. then in such a like violent, kind of first time, you know, it's not like, um, to your point, you know, the trajectory wasn't, oh, he was, you know, hitting me, and then he was hitting me harder. And then he was, you know, almost choking the life out of me. It was, right. it was, you know, it kind of went from zero to 10 in, in a split second. And, right. um, <laughs> and yeah, dumbstruck definitely. And, and I'm glad I kind of had the wherewithal the next day to, to take some photos of the mm. damage that, that he had done, um, you know, my neck and certainly there was bruising all over my body from, you know, just certainly me fighting back and, and the struggle of that whole evening. Um, <laughs> and, and his response was kind of interesting. It was like, you know, my intent wasn't to hurt you or to kill you. I just wanted answers. And, you know, I really got it stuck in my head that you were going to leave me. And I felt like that was the only way you were going to be honest with me. Um, hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, you know, when you have so much love and compassion for someone, when you know what they've been through, what their past traumas are for, for the language to be manipulated in that way. Um, it, it really, it is a bit of a form of gaslighting, you know, where, um, it makes you as the person who's been harmed really second guess yourself. And, yeah. um, I just, yeah, I just, I'm, struck by like the starkness of the escalation and um I'm kind of like right there with you in that part of the story I'm like really feeling that right now yeah yeah and you know I, I this you know is silly but you know my the company my my company had we had an appearance like later that week on the today show you know so I was like oh my goodness right how am I going to ask what happened to me so I can get through this. Right. Um, and I sat with it for, for a while, for a few weeks. And I was like, you know what, this, this is dangerous. And I called the police <laughs> and, um, yeah. yeah. And they came and they arrested him and, um, and, you know, 
gosh, just stereotypically, but you know, for a reason you just go, wow, wow. What have I done? Like he was facing some pretty serious charges and, um, you know, I panicked. I had two young kids. I had this career. He was taking care of my children. I had no one else to help. And, um, you know, he begged me, you know, just give me a second chance. This will never happen again. Well, in history, you know, those years spent with somebody, that means something, exactly. you know, the, that, that, that's in time invested in, in each other and in your family that you built together and the house that he literally built, <laughs> you know, right. Um, and for all of that to be turned on its head in a second, like nobody, nobody is hardwired to want to, like our brains have a hard time understanding the gravity of those types of situations. Like in, sometimes in order to keep us safe, our brains will immediately move to minimize like, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't that bad because that's, you know, it's too scary to live in that reality. So it makes total sense that your brain wanted to go back, you know, right. and, and remember all of the good times and not focus on on that incident. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and, and I did what so many women do. And, and I, you know, recanted my story. I, I refused to, you know, kind of testify or talk to DAs, but, you know, the legal system does, you know, I'm very blessed by the legal system here in Boulder County, certainly. Um, right. You know, they don't just take that at, um, you know, as a, okay, never mind. We're not going to press charges. They, they move forward with it. And, um, you know, I, the outcome was what I thought was probably the best outcome, or at least that's what my mind thought at that time, which was he, you know, had to be sober for two years and he had, you know, community service and there were two separate therapists that he needed to see. And, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, okay. Like here it is. He comes from this you know, background where therapists are not something that you do, especially as a male. Um, right. You know, it's you man up and, and swallow it. And, um, you know, now he was being forced. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Great. This is wonderful. And certainly, you know, the the co-disorder of, of the alcohol abuse doesn't help anybody. Um, and certainly was was spurring on all of those underlying emotions that he had. So I thought, wonderful. Right. And I appreciate that nuance there, too, that it's like, no, no, it, it wasn't like the alcohol turned him into this other person. He had a lot of other issues going on that, um, you know, alcohol is only going to make worse. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I hear a lot of people say, um, oh, well, you know, it's just because they're an addict. People don't become right. addicts because life is great people become addicts because there's underlying trauma. And unless right. you deal with that underlying trauma, you know, the addiction, the addictive personality, the escapism isn't going to go away. And it's a mind altering substance, you know, <laughs> and if it's abused over time, that's going to um, erode away at like different, you know, potentially other healthy coping mechanisms and that kind of thing. 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it physiologically can change the the brain. <laughs> right. You know, right. so, you know, it, life was, <laughs> I, I got to say life was for about a year and a half of that two years, life was good. You know, he was, he was doing the work. <laughs> he was, you know, trying his best and, um, you know, he was trying to be 
Um, <laughs> I so there, a saying that you know kind of struck me is you know there were there was this Jekyll and a Hyde, and it wasn't the man he was pretending to be versus the man he is. It was more about the man he wanted to be versus the man he believed himself to be. Oh, that's a really powerful distinguishing. Um... Yeah, distinguishment, that language is really powerful. Yeah, he he wanted to be that family man. He wanted to be the one to break that generational trauma. He wanted to step up and and be the man that I believed he was capable of being. You know, sure. but but the, you know, what we eventually came to find out, the the borderline personality, the PTSD, the depression, those, you know, convinced him that he was none of those things, that he was, you know, in his words, a piece of shit who came from shit. Mm. And, you know, no matter how much he fought and, you know, <laughs> they always say fake it till you make it. And and he tried. He gave it his best effort. Right. But that, you know, that little. That's not healing. Faking it till you make it is not the same thing as genuine healing or progress or growth. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it was a therapist of mine at one point who said, you know, here's the thing. He has no coping mechanisms. He, you know, he grew up not seeing any healthy coping mechanisms. So the amount of work that he would have to put in to actually change is, you know, would take yet another lifetime. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I, life kind of quieted down and then eventually, you know, the, the handcuffs, so to speak, I mean, metaphorically and physically were realistically were off and he, um, started drinking again and, um, you know, life started to get a little, like, oh, oh are, are, are we mm-hmm. teetering towards that edge again? What's going on? You know, you saw. The- and as someone who knows him so intimately, I'm sure you could like sense it, you know, and feel it. Right. That into it that like, oh, boy, <laughs> you know, something's going to happen and I don't know what it is type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interestingly enough, work for me at the time, I you know, was an um, executive at this company that I had worked with for for so long and um the atmosphere there had become really toxic you know you want to talk about things like gaslighting and love bombing and you know and abuse i mean that was that was happening at at work um you know and i thought my goodness this is toxic i i need to leave and and you know (laughs) retrospectively i think it's pretty interesting how it was showing up in so many different places of my life Mm -hmm. um you know and I was like recognizing that it was happening at home um but also you know it's obviously a little bit easier to disconnect from a career right exactly and and I left that company to start of my own business um which is really great it also meant I would be working from home And I thought to myself, oh, this is fabulous, right? Because here I'm going to be here. I'm going to be able to support him. And, you know, I can tell that he's kind of teetering on this edge and having me around because some of his anxiety and his fear of abandonment was, you know, I traveled so often for work and I'm going to be here. I'm going to be grounded. I can, you know, help with the kids and some of these other 
things of, you know, dealing with the house that overwhelm him now. Um, and wow. Yeah, I was wrong. Um, instead, you know, I left work in, um, October of 2018 by November of, of that year, he had, there were about two times when he had become so drunk during the day that he had kicked me. And I Mm. thought, Oh no, (laughs) here we go again. Like this is, it's going to escalate. Like, thank goodness I had these little warning signs and, um, (laughs) and I, went to, I I connected with some friends online. I, you know, had a friend in Philadelphia where I'm from and a friend here in um, Colorado. And I said, I kind of connected to the two of them. And I said, guys, I'm experiencing some weird stuff. I'm really kind of scared for me and the kids. So, um, you know, if you get a weird message from me, that's my SOS, right? And we had kind of developed a, a language, kind of a secret language of Mm, which is so smart. I, um, I just, I think so many survivors are so, they're so creative with how they keep themselves safe. Um, they know their situation better than anyone, even if their partner isn't outwardly in any given moment harming them. They, their guts tell them, you know, and give them a lot of information, a lot of cues. And it's just so, um, not that anyone should have to do that, but I am really um, often like blown away by how resilient and how how good survivors are at keeping themselves safe. The fact that you could put a, that safety plan and that little safety mechanism into place is because you could tell, right. you know, um, is very, yeah, it's very amazing. Yeah. And, you know, because, you know, in that month that I had been home, he had become very controlling and was going through my phone, wouldn't let me be on my phone without, um, you know, there to witness every move that I make, you know, he had to mm-hmm. hear every phone call and see every email, which, you know, I knew at that point, this isn't going to end well, <laughs> you know, this, right. this is troublesome. So when he was, you know, passed out drunk, I used Instagram. He wasn't very tech savvy and he stayed off of social media. So I used Instagram, you know, DMs to connect to my friends because he didn't know how to get there. And, right. you know, that, that was critical <laughs> for, right. for my survival, you know, ultimately, um, because he, so <laughs> he had, um, you know, the violence was starting to grow. And then there was one morning he was up at four o'clock in the morning, um, had started drinking, you know, and those were some of the patterns. He wasn't <laughs> sleeping at all. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, of course, lack of sleep is certainly another one of those things. He wasn't eating either. Um, so talk about getting dysregulated and he was drinking heavily this morning. He had gotten, um, drunk at four o'clock in the morning and had woken me up and pulled me into the living room and was begging me to kill him. Just put a pillow over Mm. my head and kill me. I can't take this anymore you know, I want to go be with my dad in heaven. I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, that was enough of a signal for me to go, yeah, this, this is a problem. Um, I laid there with him and kind of consoled him and, and, um, you know, rocked him to sleep and, you know, got the kids up and, um, left for school. And I thought, oh my God, I'm out of the house without him. 
And I had called my friend in Philadelphia who, you know, is in education. And she said, and I said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm out of the house. You know, I, this is my chance. This is it. Like if I, if I go back, something bad's going to happen. I'm out. Yeah. I'm safe. What do I do? You know, cause I wasn't thinking. And she said, go to the school, turn around, go to the school. Schools are, you know, a safe to tell place. Right. If you and the kids are in danger, they have to do something about it. And they have resources and they're connected to the community and yeah. Exactly. And I also, um, I wanted to point out too, just a little bit of education. There is a huge relationship between suicidality and homicidality when it comes to domestic violence that most of us don't know about. Exactly. And And when an abusive person is showing those suicidal tendencies, that is often a red flag that things could escalate to homicide very quickly. Exactly. And I had done my reading and I had done my research and I had just come across an article that said exactly Mm. that. And the Mm -hmm. second he said, you know, just put a pillow over my head, kill me. I want to be gone. I thought, oh, shit, (laughs) this is not real. You know, this is this is this is life or death. And right. um, I, I went to the school, they managed to get me and the kids into a shelter, which was phenomenal. Um, and I, um, and, you know, he kind of figured this all out pretty quickly and thought, oh boy, yeah, this isn't going anywhere really good. Now, of course, I had spoken to the police as well, but the school had gotten me into the shelter, but police came as well and kind of interviewed me and talked to me and they were kind of deciding if there was enough there to, to do anything with a few times he had kicked me, that sort of thing. Right. And, um, and they said, you know, go to the shelter, stay there for as much as possible. Of course, (laughs) one of the tricky things is I was running my own business at the time and I needed internet (laughs) and the shelter does not provide internet. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is how, oh, you know, it's, this place of panic. Um, I had also then gotten a message from my husband who said, yeah, I get it. This has gone too far. I'm going to check myself into rehab. So I used that opportunity to go back home. We had a dog. So the poor dog was there. So I had to, you know, kind of help care for the dog because he left for rehab and I couldn't take the dog to the shelter. So I thought, okay, I could be safe. Um, he was supposed to be in this rehab for six to eight weeks. Okay. And a week later, um, he was out <laughs> and I thought, Oh my gosh, like this, this isn't, this isn't good. <laughs> um, and okay. I said, look, you can go anywhere you want, but you can't come here. Um, he had gone to our bank account, taking out a large sum of cash, had checked himself into a hotel and, um, about two days later, the police had called me and said, we are going to, we have enough to arrest him. I said, that's great. Um, you know, he is in outpatient therapy and this is where he'll be. So they arrested him. But of course, with that cash on him, he had enough to bail himself out and go oh, wow. to the hotel. Uh, <laughs> of course, then this is all now in front of a judge who says, um, you know what? Yep, protection order against Stacy. He can't come anywhere close to her, but he's still the father of those kids. And right. they granted him unsupervised visitation oh rights. 
Yeah, I uh, yeah, I just want to pause for a second too, and and acknowledge how much harder um, leaving abusive relationships are when you have ch- children with that person. Um, it just complicates everything, and you know, just because someone is abusive towards you know a partner doesn't mean they're always abusive to the kids. So then the kids are sort of in the middle, and it becomes re- obviously traumatic and 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 confusing for them. Um, but but then when you get involved with the justice system you know, uh, parental rights are a big deal and they're very reluctant to take those away from people, which part of me understands, but also when someone is violent, um, and puts their family at risk, like that's, you know, they, they have sort of, the consequences should be that they lose their right, certain rights (laughs) to be a parent, (laughs) you know, seems logical, but (laughs) yeah. Um, you know, so, and so interesting, you know, I had called child protection and I, you know, cause of course at that point, because I had gone to the school, child protection services was involved and they were being incredibly helpful. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like this can't happen because I know right. him enough to know if he's talking about suicide, I, you know, that mama bear instinct goes, nope, he's going to get those kids. And that's going to be some sort of either bargaining chip, or he's going to go get so drunk. And he's going to, you know, start speeding down I-25 and a million miles per hour and run into right. three. Like, I just, nope, <laughs> not going to happen. And, you know, I called my CPS um, <laughs> caseworker and said, like, this can't happen. What do I do? Um, you know, hadn't, I had to leave a message and apparently my message got lost. And, you know, so I'm sitting there in a kind of, oh shit moment. Um, What happened? And of course, then he's calling, threatening, saying, if you don't let me have the kids, I'm going to use you again, this against you. I'm going to take custody of the kids. I'm going to bring charges against you saying you kidnapped them. You know, I have this right. (laughs) <laughs> and and people with you know abusive personalities do not like the feeling of losing control mm-hmm. and um if they feel like their their power or their control is being threatened or that it'll be taken away it often escalates them Absolutely. so it, that's a critical moment for you because you've sort of you know you're you're trying to take his children away and right um, I'm sure he didn't like that, but also, you know, or, protection orders are amazing. And I think in a lot of situations, they are a form of accountability, mm-hmm. but it's just a piece of paper, exactly. you know, and, and if that person is still at large and knows where you are, if they're out in the community, they're not locked up, like there, there, that's a incredibly dangerous time an incredibly dangerous time for survivors. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm yeah. sure you felt it. Well, yeah. And, you know, here's... <laughs> Here's what happened next. Um, you know, he showed up to my house and mm-hmm. he um, said he had not been drinking. He said, you know, I have a right to these kids and, you know, I want them now. And I said, well, you can't take them out of this house. You know, and I knew, right, because the justice system can go a number of different ways. I knew I was putting myself in danger by, you know, putting my foot down. Right. Not only with him but also with the legal system, right? Should right. he then, you know, file for divorce and custody, this could go a very different way. And, um, but, you know, I had to go with that, that mama bear instinct. And um, I said, yeah, they're not leaving this house. And he said, well, then I'm coming in. And I said, okay, I guess, um, because at this point, I don't remember much of what happened that night. 
um, other than he did tell me that he was going to, we had put the kids to bed and I said, you got to go. And he said, well, I am going, but not how you think. I'm going to kill myself. He had a bag of um, like Vicodin and Percocet, that sort of thing that he had collected for years from, wow. you know, various whatever, you know, tooth. Right. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> various operation, you know, mouth surgery and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, well, no, I don't think that that's a great idea. I think we can, you know, get through this and, you know, you're making a big deal out of this and, you know, calm down. And I tried to, you know, fight, flight, freeze or appease, right? My, my appease was, whew, I calm him down, get him to a place of safety. Um, and he had then, um, he grabbed me, he pushed me into the basement and he said, and here's the thing I am dying tonight. And so are you. Mm. And yeah, that, that's, you know, a physical assault. I was on the ground, you know, hands under his knees and he was just wailing on my face, you know, knocked my teeth out, broke most of the bones in my face. Um, you know, just really, and was strangling me. The last thing I remember of that particular moment was, um, you know, spitting my teeth out and looking at him and saying, you fucker. And then he strangled me until I blacked out. Mm. The next thing I know, I don't really know how this happened other than some recounting of my son. Um, I was hiding in a neighbor's backyard at one o'clock in the morning, it was seven degrees Fahrenheit. I had managed to get both kids out. We were all in our PJs. Um, and I had called 911. So, which can I, M- Mama Bear is right. Like the, that will to live. I'm just like, oof, I'm feeling the emotion of this moment right now. I'm like, wow, wow, you are so strong to, to somehow, even in some sort of, you know. Right moment of of unconsciousness still managed to get your kids out and call the police like just absolutely wow exactly you know and wow apparently I had called 911 on my phone um and then hung up and like stashed my phone in the basement um Mm. so I was on my son you know I guess I my son says he ran back in the house to get his phone which is like wow you know for Mm -hmm. then 11 year old to have to do is pretty intense Um, I was clearly battered and and bloody. So, you know, apparently I had to chase my daughter around who was seven at the time because she thought I was a monster, right? She didn't know I was mommy. That's so scary. Yeah. Yeah, She, you know, and I guess I somehow grabbed them both and just dragged them out of the house and managed to find a backyard that was open. So. So the police intervened. Yeah, it started, um, you know, a seven hour, what they call standoff, right? I was taken to the hospital. The kids went to, um, went to the police station. They took amazing care of them. Um, and I had my son's phone on me, managed to like load Instagram because I, you know, who knows anybody's phone numbers anymore? Right. I didn't know any friends' phone numbers. I managed to load Instagram on his phone, sign into my Instagram account, and message my two friends and say, "Hey, kids are at you know at Erie PD, and I'm at this hospital. Can you help?" <laughs> um, mayday! Mayday! Right? Exactly. SOS. This is it. Um, this is it. 
And so he had slit his throat from ear to ear um, and was bleeding out in the, um, in our bed. But, you know, the mixture of the alcohol and I I guess maybe he took some of those pills had slowed his heart rate so much that even though our house was full of blood, he managed to live. He survived. Wow. Yeah. Um, Wow. And, you know, they, they took him to when they finally broke down the front door of my house and pulled him out and got him into emergency surgery um, and then took him to jail um, where he was then charged with attempted murder amongst other things. Sure. Um, And, you know, ultimately he um, sat in jail, kind of awaiting trial. Um, There was one court appearance that I did have to go to and he asked to make a statement Um, the judge looked at me like, do you want him to do it? Right. Um, and my instinct said, yeah, let him talk. And he kind of admitted everything right there and apologized to me. And three days later he was dead. So he, he had, had suicided in jail. In jail. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what, um, can I just ask what, what was that that moment like for you I mean that's there's I'm sure there were so many different emotions probably you know but were you relieved not relieved horrified all of the above (laughs) all of the above definitely I think you know one of my friends put it really well like you're not only grieving the man that you lost when he became violent but you're also like now, like you had already started to grieve him and now you have to grieve both men, you know, and that's, wow, that's a hard place to be, you know, certainly. Right. Um, but it was interesting because it was my son who, who really offered perspective to me. And while he was horrified, he was also, you know, and he had still had so much anger towards his dad, towards what had happened. But he said, you know what, mom, my worry is gone because not only do I not have to worry anymore about what happens if he gets out of jail, I also don't have to worry about him in jail. Right. Yeah. That's some deep shit for for a kiddo. Wow. Right. Exactly. Oh my goodness. So wise. So wise. I know my, my old soul there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's been, um, it's been an interesting journey because I think, um, you know, I, (laughs) I, um, was talking to my therapist and so, you know, kind of randomly I said, God, you know, I just don't know like where I fit anymore. Like, you know, I had already found Stevie and we are her and, you know, was kind of looking towards that community for support from, you know, the, the violence and surviving that. (laughs) And then, you know, all of a sudden here I am a widow And, um, you know, there's, I was looking for support there as well. And I said, gosh, I feel like this weird, like all of a sudden, because I have these two things, I don't necessarily fit into any group. And, you know, she said kind of, you know, off the cuff, she said, you know, I just read this interesting book 
by um, Laura Lynn Jackson, who is a medium. She said it's it might be worth a, a read. And so I did read it. And, you know, it's called The Light Between Us and just talking about kind of mediumship and, you know, what happens when we die. And, you know, I did kind of a deeper, <laughs> deeper dive. I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. And it was really comforting in a way that I had never expected. And, um, you know, had found some other, um, you know, mediums, certainly some that were closer to the Denver area. Um, one of them, Deb Shepard, who, you know, at, was giving a talk in Boulder. And I thought, wow, that would be so interesting. So I went and I heard her talk and tell her story. And, um, you know, she be became a medium after her husband suicided. And wow. She wrote this book called From Grieving to Believing. And, you know, I read it and it was so helpful, you know, just talking about how to help your kids through this type of, you know, through a, a loss, but also through a loss of suicide. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it is its own specific kind of trauma. It is. It it it, it really is. And you know, <laughs> I think um, the other thing I found there's you know a couple of support groups on like Facebook Facebook that work deal with you know widows who've lost their partners to suicide, mm -hmm. and it's so interesting because once you really hear stories of you know how they lost and why they lost and what was happening up until then you know while the abuse may not be as strong or you know as present and in some cases it's you know almost exactly my story to a t you know there's people don't suicide because you know just like people don't become addicts or alcoholics because they don't have trauma people don't suicide right. because they don't have trauma right and and so it was so you know healing and interesting for me to kind of be part of this group and you know kind of <laughs> look back it gave me a really interesting um point of view when I looked back from as a survivor of domestic violence what it allowed me to do was kind of acknowledged where I hadn't really acknowledged or um, forgave him from, you know, now that he was dead, now that he couldn't hurt me anymore, I was able to forgive him in a way that was so healing and therapeutic for me because I really was able to acknowledge and accept the trauma that brought him to that place to begin with, if that makes sense. Right. No, it makes complete sense. And I appreciate that. Well, you know, your description of forgiveness was not about him, really. It was about what you needed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, especially when someone is deceased, yeah. I mean, forgiving them at that point is really about kind of what you need in order to heal. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it's it it feels bad to say out loud, but the reality is, his, you know, his taking his own life was a gift to me because it allowed me mm -hmm. to, you know, certainly there was fear and trauma and, you know, the, the, 
um, anxiety that comes along with, you know, what happens next, what have, you know, that constant right. fear of, is he going to be able to hurt me? And right. when he wasn't, it really allowed me to get through those emotions, you know, not very right, right. Like achieve a sense of safety, like actual practical physical safety and start re-regulating and get that nervous system to come down and get out of that survival mode. So you can have, you know, process those emotions. And, and when you're in survival mode, you, you know, that rational brain is shutting down. You are, you are trying to survive and um, it's hard to do anything, but, but just survive moment to moment when you're in that headspace. And if he had not um, died by suicide, you know, mm-hmm. you would have potentially been locked in a control, in a, in, a, in a control struggle, a power struggle with him for a lot longer. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, and even, you know, the worry, you know, of, of what right. his life would be and you know, right. if he would be able to heal and, you know, if he would have those resources available to him. And, right. you know, <laughs> so after he had passed away, I, I guess he had written um, kind of a, a fake or a dummy suicide note to leave at the jail that really didn't talk about me or the kids or anything. And, you know, the detective of course had found that and had shared that with me. And I thought, my goodness, like this isn't him. This doesn't sit right with me. And several weeks later I got this package in the mail and his, he had written um, like three composition books full of notes for me and the kids and it wow. was notes of apology and notes of, um, you know, love and notes of like, this is what I was dealing with. And it was so interesting to me. So he had, his um, cellmate had managed to smuggle them out of jail and mail them wow. to me. And I think he did that thinking that the police wouldn't give me, you know, these books, which they probably would not have. Um, so, you know, I got this amazing gift from him, which was, um, you know, detailing exactly the pain and the trauma that he was dealing with. And it was so incredible that in that moment, um, when he had kind of decided this is it, I'm done and started, um, writing it that, you know, it was, he was finally in that moment able to understand detail and process that trauma in a way that he had never done before. Yeah. And I don't know, like what, you know, are you talking about mediums and things? I do think it feels that type of gift can feel um, a healing to know that someone before they have died has been able to process and do some healing of their own. So, you know, if you believe in an afterlife, maybe not taking that with them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I'm, amazed and flirted at how much that really allowed me to process everything and to think about forgiveness in such a different way and to think about mental health in such a different way. Um, you know, and then to really start to identify how, you know, certainly survivors, we all now carry a new trauma with us and how important that is to really heal and and process. And, you know, I, I don't love the saying everything happens for a reason, (laughs) because I think it's kind of a a silly platitude, but I think 
you know, in going through this, I think it's more about like bad things happen. And if you can find some good that comes from them and find a way to take this bad situation and turn it into something um, where you can then be of service and, you know, help other people. Obviously, you know, what you, Emily and Stevie are doing with, with We Are Her is, you know, just one of those ways that you can process trauma and help people who are going through it and, and be of service. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm hearing, you know, as you're speaking, um, this theme of connection, mm-hmm. that is so important. You know, the connecting with the We Are Her community, connecting with the the groups um, who of widows who've experienced, a, you know, a partner who's died by suicide in the connection with mediums that, um, that, that I don't, I'm just trying to like, you know, touch on that really, really important theme of connection. And it, it feels like in all of this, that is one of those, you know, most healing modalities. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly isolation, I think is something that we all experience when we go through this, right? Certainly the type of, of, um, of abuse that you can go through is it can kind of define that that isolation sometimes it's just you know a self-isolation of shutting down after something happens and sometimes it's you know at the hands of our abusers as part of the manipulation and abuse and i think that's exactly what's so important is finding that connection when you are on the other side of it because that's where healing sits mm, yeah that's such a like deeply important message. And I want to just um, thank you for being so open and for being so honest, um, for being so vulnerable with your sharing and generous with your sharing. I feel really honored to be on the other side of receiving that, that story. I just, um, yeah, you're such a beautiful person. I can't even like see you because we're on this like stupid <laughs> internet app, but I can I can feel your energy in this conversation and it's just really you're such a beautiful beautiful person. Well, thank you so much and you know, thank you for allowing me to share this. I just, you know, I think and you know, it's something going forward as, you know, humans that healing is so important early on and, you know, having these conversations and allowing people to hear them is so important because what I don't think people necessarily understand is, you know, they have this idea of an abuser who is this monster, right? right? And they are just, they are this monster, but that monster inside of them came from somewhere. Right. It came from something that happened to them or something they experienced or something they witnessed. And if we don't acknowledge that and make mental health a priority and something that is not taboo and, you know, should be started in our schools, mindfulness and ways to self-regulate when we're feeling anxious or depressed or when we're scared or, you know, just understanding the um, you know, how the nervous system works. And, and those things are so important that we should be teaching in schools and we should be giving kids access to, you know, what are growth mindsets and how can you use your mind to 
um, heal yourself and, and use your heart to heal yourself. Because if we don't, you know, you just see what's happening now in the world, you know, abuse and, you know, you look at the narcissistic personalities or some of the, um, you know, some of the mental health issues, they just seem to be growing and, you know, it's exponential, you know, not to use the, the comparison to, you know, what's happening right now, why we're on this platform, but like, like the coronavirus, it's like this growth is exponential and mental health is that way too, you know, for, so for survivors, it's so important to find ways to not only heal ourselves, but heal anybody, you know, our kids or, or people who are close to us who've also been impacted because that's just setting up generations. And, you know, that's (laughs) certainly becoming, you know, something that's so important to my purpose moving forward is to make mental health awareness something that we talk about and, you know, future generations just accept and don't push it down and don't, you know, quote unquote, man up. Um, Right. Yeah. And we've done a bad job of that as a society, but I do think that things are changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it in large part comes from the bravery of people like you and Stevie and all the survivors out there and people who aren't survivors, just being um, courageous enough to be vulnerable, um, to share stories, to have these difficult conversations, to not ignore, um, you know, and the more that we do that, the better off we're going to be collectively. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. You got it. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much again. And, um, and before we kind of end recording, mm-hmm. I, I always like to, to give one kind of final opportunity for guests to share any message that they would want a survivor listening to hear. Um, you know, I think certainly, you know, as a survivor, the fact that you are in the position to be a survivor is, um, you know, is amazing and you should be proud of yourself. Mm. But not only that, your healing is so important and, um, you know, to really do the work and understand that that can look like so many different things. Um, You know, it's important to find healing modalities that work, that connect. And if they're not, it's okay to keep exploring. You know, I think, The thing that worked for me so much is something that, you know, my therapist who I love so much and has helped me so much has just, you know, on this sidetrack note kind of pointed me in a direction that opened me up to something else and this whole other world. Um, And, you know, you just have to be open to finding what works for you from a healing point of view and, you know, own it and dig deep and, um, yeah, there's, there's better stuff waiting on the other side of, of healing. (laughs) I love that. I really love that. And it's such an important message. Um, you know, I think I've heard from a lot of guests on the podcast that we're often, um, as survivors, like told how to heal Uh and that in and of itself is very disempowering. It does the opposite (laughs) of what, you know, it's actually more detrimental to healing than it is helpful. And, um, and that's why I really appreciate your openness and your honesty about, how you have found healing and what that looks like to you, because there is no like perfect modality for everyone. It is not a one size fits all situation. And, um, 
And I think we as survivors can often get wrapped up in that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love, I love that. I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what worked for me was something that I think a lot of people, you know, look at me and, and you know, have said to me like, oh, that feels like grasping for straws. And it's like, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I had somebody else say to me like, well, don't you feel shame for that? And I thought, wow, like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Mm-hmm you know, and you've got to, you've got to own it and you've got to like be okay with people not understanding your feeling. And you know, right. there are people out there who, um, who will to go back to that point of connection and you've got to just kind of deep, keep digging deep to, you know, to find your, your crew, right. <laughs> to find the people, right? you know, to find your tribe who the ones who jive with you and who are going to help you get to that place. Yeah. I I'm, I totally agree. And, um, and there are people out there to receive you yeah. for any survivor listening. I mean, obviously we are hers here, yeah. but there are so many communities, um, sometimes locally that you can tap into. There are other resources online. Um, but yeah, you're not alone. Exactly. And yeah, find those people that you can connect with. Cause that is just, it can be instrumental in taking you to the next level of healing. 100%. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap up. But again, just thank you so much for your generosity um, in your sharing. And we feel really, really lucky to have you on the podcast and to get your story out. Well, thank you so much to to you and Evie and the We Are Her family. I, you know, you're definitely a a soft place for me to land, which is so important. So thank you. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.